I also want to mention that we have Joel Riedenberg and Doron Benatar who are scholars here at Fordham, and they are co-convening uh, the seminars. Doron is the acting chair of history, and Joel is a professor of law, and he runs a research center on law and information policy. Law and information policy here at Fordham. So it's a, we're honored to be connected to Fordham and to these two scholars. You ready? Go read the Thank you. Thanks, Charles. So I am uh, delighted to get a chance to introduce Alex uh, for tonight's lecture. We're really excited to have this second event in the series uh, here at Fordham. Uh, Alex Tsitsi is an associate professor of law at Loyola. Uh, he teaches constitutional law, civil procedure, uh, seminars devoted to uh, civil rights issues. He's published uh, numerous books, um, Oxford University Press, Yale University Press, NYU Press, uh, in this field, uh, dealing with speech and, and hate speech and anti-Semitism. Um, he's really one of the country's leading uh, thinkers, leaders, particularly legal thinkers, uh, on these issues. Um, this is not the first time he has spoken at Fordham. We've had the pleasure uh, of having him at a conference that my center ran several years ago on hate versus democracy on the internet. So I can assure you we will be in for a great treat uh, hearing him speak this evening. Alex, thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, well, thank you so much for that generous welcome, and, and thanks to Charles and Duran also for inviting me. Uh, interestingly, Joel and my family uh, hail from the same city in, uh, uh, in what is now uh, part of Moldavia, in Kamenets uh, Podolsk, and they have the horrible misfortune of both of our families having been murdered in the massacre of Kamenets Podolsk, uh, even though our families, from what we can gather from having spoke, asked around, uh, did not know each other, but uh, it was really the first uh, massacre uh, that encompassed uh, five-figure uh, murders uh, by the Nazis uh, coming into uh, the Soviet Union far, far on the, on the west. Um, so uh, the, I want to speak to you about the differing approaches in the United States and Europe in uh, regulating anti-Semitic speech. The distinct approaches are partly there because of the unique histories with obviously more virulent and more sustained anti-Semitism in Europe and in Arabic countries than it is here in the United States. And even today, the anti-Semitism emanating from those regions is, of course, even uh, uh, more menacing than uh, its counterpart here. Uh, despite these differences, I want to try to demonstrate this evening that there is just as much principled reason to regulate hate speech here in the United States, and particularly as it affects uh, Jews and anti-Semitism, as there is abroad. Is a very controversial subject. I don't know if any of you saw the story today in the New York Times that uh, Twitter has pulled the account of a Hanover uh, uh, hate group uh, that the German government asked it to uh, completely take down their website. Uh, the Germany, uh, uh, despite Germans' request, or because of Germans' request, I should say, Twitter has decided to prevent the uh, their account from going. This hate group's account from going into uh, Germany, but has continued it into uh, other places in the world. So really, it's accessible 
everywhere. So it's very um, controversial. If you read the New York Times article, you'll see that the reporter is very, very antagonistic towards this, thinks that it's a major uh, impediment to free speech and looking at the comments uh, that uh, people saw. I only went through a couple of them, but uh, you know they're much supportive of that view. My remarks will specifically focus on the ideological differences and the approaches on free speech here and elsewhere. Uh, in the United States, academics and politicians have focused on a more libertarian point of view than in Europe. Their emphasis is typically on the self-expressive worth of speech, while European and Canadian policies tend to show greater historical sensibility to the role of anti-Semitism in everything from pogroms to discrimination and exterminationism. The argument in the United States tends to place a greater emphasis on the individual interest to make offensive remarks and to downplay its potential to harm the targeted audience and society at large. European nations and Canada, on the other hand, are more likely to counterbalance the potential interests in speech with its likelihood or the likelihood of incitement against Jews to create uh, a, a, to create a more uh, pluralistic society. Let me put it a different way: that the regulations tend to further pluralism rather than to harm it. Is the way that Europeans and Canadians think of it. Where in the United States, the thought is that we will actually harm uh, democracy and more specifically individual rights if we were to regulate uh, hate speech. The United States. Public policy then is much more differential to speakers that even when they instigate hatred against minorities or Jews, their institutions, their practices, and their dignity, U.S. scholars and judges tend to downplay the centuries of tragic experience that Jews have experienced of how their stereotypes against them have both reflected and influenced custom and law. European and Canadian lawmakers are more careful to guard against the risk that advocacy will turn into action. Penalizing hate, hate speech, they believe, helps to institutionalize lessons about the tragic past in order to set necessary regulations against the aggravation of simmering prejudices. U.S. history is not without its own skeletons, and I'm thinking of such things as slavery as well as Native American relocation. And the potential for destructive statements are here just as much as they are in Europe, and I think they shouldn't be taken lightly, and that's going to be the subject of my, in my talk this evening, where I'll discuss the differing approaches of anti-Semitic speech in various democracies around the world, and a comparative discussion that will draw in various rationales of national states have given for uh, restricting uh, uh, various uh, anti-Semitic groups. Countries that have adopted international pacts and domestic laws against the speech widely agree that Nazi uses of slogans helped German leadership recruit, indoctrinate, and energize a broad following, making anti-Semitic speech not at all benign. In the United States, which is the project I'm going to speak about uh, during the second part of the lecture, unlike other nations around the world, the Supreme Court has clung to an antedated, antiquated concept of speech that's much more in line with social Darwinism than it is with historical reality. 
So first, just to begin with international norms. A variety of international pacts prohibit the instigation of unlawful conduct based on group defamation, hatred of Jews and various other uh, minorities that uh, call for violence and, and, and uh, uh, try to get others to engage in the sort of discrimination that we all associate with anti-Semitism. Many, if not most, democracies around the globe, in fact all the ones that I'm aware of, recognize that hate propaganda helps to perpetuate ethnic strife and poses a threat to targeted groups. Laws against the dissemination of hate speech exist in democracies around the world, so in part in thinking about this argument that regulation of speech will harm democracies, well, it certainly hasn't harmed democracies in countries like Austria, Germany, Hungary, India, the Netherlands, uh, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, and many other, France, and many other democracies around the world that have hate speech regulations. Those are thriving democracies. There's no reason to think that they will not continue to be, and they're very much committed to free speech, despite their regulation of hate speech. European countries then are particularly sensitive to the potential of speech to turn into action, having seen the power of propaganda in the European theater during the Second World War. Three years after the war, the United Nations General Assembly passed the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, in which there is a provision that prohibits the instigation of um, uh, genocide against Jews and other vulnerable peoples. In the hands of charismatic leaders, the thought is that these destructive messages that exist in this sort of political uh, downgraded, not, not many people are interested, where charismatic leader comes to power, can harness that and sustain that both for the purpose of retaining power as, and amassing it further, gathering followers who see something in common, this particular hatred, and as well as then turning it into action and taking it into what they think is the final solution in the extreme, most extreme case, or to just simply allow uh, anti-Semitism to uh, continue and for violence to occur as, as, a, uh, as, a, as just a way for people to release steam and anger and find a common enemy rather than looking at the negative policies of the state. The United States at first uh, had reservations about this uh, declaration uh, and particularly it did not want to enter into the part about instigation but has since uh, in passing the Genocide Convention Implementation Act, this is a U.S. law, uh, as far as I can tell from my, I mean I've done an exhaustive search of it, uh, certainly there are no reported cases of any uses of this part of the Genocide Act to prosecute anyone for the instigation uh, of genocide. We know that the act, obviously, uh, the, the Convention Against uh, Genocide and the Punishment of Genocide has not stopped uh, these things from occurring. And if we look around the world and we look at, for example, the uh, dehumanization, dehumanizing rhetoric in Rwanda uh, by the Hutus against the Tutsis calling them cockroaches, amongst other things, uh, has it also played a very important role in generating genocide in that country. And the Khmer Rouge, obviously, is another political form of mass violence that has happened since that convention. Well, other conventions that are out there uh, that have this anti-instigation uh, 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 component 
are the uh, include the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of uh, uh, Racial Discrimination. Uh, this convention against the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination was passed in 1960 after a series of anti-Semitic events around the world. It was well recognized during debates on this convention that what was going on was that uh, there was this increase in anti-Semitism so short a time, just 15 years after the end of World War II with uh, you know, mass media coverage in the very early days of what had happened in the Nazi concentration camps. And so one of the uh, articles in Article 4 of the convention commits govern governments who are parties to this convention to both declare, declare it a punishable offense to disseminate uh, ideas of racial superiority and to declare it illegal and prohibit organizations which organize and, uh, prop and propagandize uh, you know, on the basis of these supremacist ideals. And there are other countries as well, uh, other conventions as well. Uh, the continuing effort to fight anti-Semitism, xenophobia, and other forms of racism by European nations has increasingly incorporated these conventions into their domestic law. So what they've done with these is that these, as I said in, in the Convention on the Elimination of uh, Racial Discrimination, it's not that it actually created a right of action but rather that it, it required those who covenant to the convention to make such laws. And European countries have done exactly that. So in Austria, where just recently, in August of this year, a very violent attack occurred, uh, by, including Nazi salutes and statements about Jews need to go uh, back to their own country. Uh, there is a penal code that enforces this um, uh, that, that enforces law against the instigation of anti-Semitism and other forms of racial discrimination. It, the way that Austria looks at it is that it's part of public order against inciting hostilities against religious, ethnic, nationality, and racial minorities, with the underlying purpose being the prohibition of slander and the attack of human dignity. This is a very important distinction between European laws in that they tend to place emphasis on human dignity in a way that United States legal academics often throw up their hands and say we don't really know what dignity is because we don't really you know even try to define concepts like liberty or due process or rights those are all very very ambiguous but for some reason they have a particularly difficult time with dignity which is just as ambiguous as any of those that we consider to be uh, the bastions of our fundamental rights some countries with a very long history of anti-Semitism have laws against the sale of Nazi paraphernalia. So for example, in a very famous case that uh, you may have heard of because it's been out there for quite a while, in France, a, a French court required Google to prohibit contact by an uh, internet uh, service provider, Yahoo. Uh, I hope I'm saying it's internet service provider, search engine, uh, Internet yeah, search, the Yahoo, yeah, the Yahoo. What was their auction site? The, the, well, the, the auctions were coming through Yahoo. You could search for Nazi paraphernalia and you could buy it in France. This is against French law. Yahoo said it could not prevent, stop this material from going to France. The judge ordered it to stop. And in fact, uh, evidence by experts showed that you could see they, that Yahoo could actually stop those the sale of that memorabilia specifically into France in the same way that, that I just mentioned 
about Twitter stopping the account of this anti-Semitic group going into specifically Germany. And Yahoo, in fact, stopped doing that because there was a sanction. The judge said that if you don't stop, prevent this, every day there's going to be a fine. Uh, Yahoo challenged this in federal court in the United States, but on various procedural grounds, not on substance. It was not, nothing was decided about the speech component of this, but on procedural grounds it was dismissed. So Yahoo stopped uh, this based on French law. The French court was obviously requiring Yahoo to abide by French law. Right? These are multinational corporations that really want to run, uh, that really want to operate without having to abide by any national laws and to use the most liberal laws on speech, which are really in the United States. Likewise, the Canadian Human Rights Commission ordered a white supremacist and Holocaust denier, Ernst Zundel, to remove anti-Semitic statements from his websites, even though it was op being operated from California, but it was being sent into Canada. Uh, in, in California, of course, it was legal to disseminate this information, in particular by the First Amendment. The commission found it enough that Zundel's website was received in, in Canada to find that there was an offense and that that, that gra granted authority to the court to enforce Canadian laws. Right? Not only just because uh, you, you might think where there, are two diff there are different ways you could enforce law. You could say, well, if, it, if the illegal action occurs in our country, then we can enforce law. You could say, if it occurs in the country and or if its effect is in our country, either way we can enforce the law, and that's what the Canadian court did, that's what the French court did before it. German courts, like the French and Canadian counterparts, have also, have also recognized that democratic society has an obligation to hold persons responsible for spreading hateful messages into Germany from outside its borders. So just three years ago, in 2009, Germany requested that a foreign internet provider bar web, uh, websites that promote neo-Nazi ideology. It didn't order them to prevent this, but it asked them to do so, which is already making a communicative effect about Germany's commitment against anti-Semitism. Germany's memory of the real risk that can result from inflaming long-established hatreds and stereotypes and the, the ease with which they can be incorporated into political rhetoric have translated into policies that counterbalance the risk to a democracy and the high, its high value, the high value it puts on speech. So it balances things out. The U.S. courts, just in very recent, two, in three recent Supreme Court opinions in the last uh, about year and a half, two year and a half to two years, have prohibited the balancing of any other social value with the value of speech. They become extremely categorical. In Germany, on the other hand, there is a clear balance because Article One of the German Constitution is about dignity, and so and then the other provisions deal with speech. And German courts allow for the balancing of speech with human dignity as well as the right to retain democracy. Because after all, Hitler came to power in a democracy, and Germany is well aware of that lesson. So Germany's uh, protection of democratic order and the dignity of others has led it to prevent incitement of hatreds against particular segments of the population, advocating violence and discrimination against them, and insulting them and exposing them to malicious contempt and slander. The persistence of anti-Semitism and xenophobia in Germany, despite the horrific lessons of the Holocaust, have also led to the codification of prohibitions against the abuse of expression 
free speech, teaching, the right of assembly and association, all critical rights in Germany, essential rights to democracy, but ones that can be limited in order to prevent democracy, as it was in, in, in uh, Weimar, from moving into autocracy. In Germany, as in many other European countries, there has been an increasing number of instigations and perpetrations of anti-Semitic acts. In one recent attack, Daniel, uh, Rabbi Daniel Alter was recognized as a Jew for wearing a yarmulke and was attacked by several Arab men uh, in something that was quite uh, publicized uh, in Germany and around the world. In an attempt to curb the existing uh, far-right parties like the party in the Twitter issue that I mentioned earlier, there's also another major one called the National Democratic Party, the NPD is its acronym, in German. The German Interior Ministry has been investigating them in trying to uh, exercise a provision of its law that prohibits the dissemination of, of anti-democratic speech and it's amassed uh, over a thousand pages of documents about their activities and anti-Semitism that's trying to move forward. It's very, very slow. And it's very slow because of the commitment to democracy. And when you think about it, for example, compared to the Israeli model, Israel also has a law that prohibits anti-democratic parties from participating in the Knesset. The only group that's ever exercised that against is Kach. So why? Because it wants to be exceedingly careful. Not because it doesn't recognize there's hatred from other sectors of society, but rather because, uh, just as in Germany, there's great care being taken care of. It's, and these regulations are making a statement about the commitment of society against bigotry, but uh, they're not really leading to a road of perdition and the end of free speech in the way that you see in U.S. media and you usually hear from uh, First Amendment academics. The United States takes a substantially different approach to incitement than European countries that I've just reviewed. To begin, the United States valuation of speech is in every way uh, places just as much import uh, it values it just as much as Germany, Austria, France, and Canada, who I just spoke about. What's different is a much more limited approach to regulation on hate speech in the United States than in Europe. The U.S. Supreme Court has often stifled the creation of laws that prohibit hateful incitement. And the court's recent decision, which I mentioned, prohibit this balancing uh, of, of speech against other social values. So that provides the opportunity for groups to disseminate hate from the U.S., which they cannot do elsewhere, which is why Zundel was here trying to use this as a forum for his website. Uh, and most, most hate groups' websites are, come out of the United States uh, because of the First Amendment. So they exploit uh, First Amendment protections. It's not that they're committed to free speech, right, these, uh, these uh, xenophobic, anti-Semitic groups. It's not that they, they, you know, they're in the United States because of the deep commitment to U.S. values. They're here to exploit the, the, uh, the low access with which we uh, prosecute these things. Current First Amendment doctrine rejects the constitutionality, rejects the constitutionality of any regulations on the content of speech except those that the court has found to be traditional forms of prescription. Now, this concept that the court can figure out only traditional forms of prescription allows it to have a lot of latitude and subjectivity by the members of the court of what they think 
is traditional. Surely they don't think the Alien and Sedition Act is traditional, but that's really where tradition is. First of all, tradition is quite different than what it is today, but the court is using this traditional approach. In practice, this means that a variety of expressive conducts, like Holocaust denial, are protected currently by First Amendment doctrine, unlike in, the, uh, in other democratic countries. The different approaches to inflammatory speech arise from a unique national and cultural experience. Europe is obviously more aware of the extreme destruction uh, that often follows on the heels of anti-Semitism. The United States is not immune to anti-Semitism. There were uh, events in the United States like, uh, you know, very uh, well-publicized thing about uh, the Ivy Leagues keeping Jews out. Uh, but it's obviously not reared its head to the same extent that it did in Europe. Um, the pogroms, you know, the attempted genocides obviously have not happened here. The case of Canada is different. So where we can look at Germany and Austria and France and we can see a clear past where there was either Nazis that were actually there or, you know, in the case of Vichy, Nazis in half of the country are sympathizers. In Canada, there also has not been this strong anti-Semitic culture. McGill, by the way, where his gap uh, is now, has a program, wonderful uh, events going on there. Uh, also excluded Jews, but obviously he's now taken a major about face, you know, hosting his gap. Amongst the major. major, okay, it has, has, has changed somewhat. But <laughs> really that ambiguity, not knowing more. But it would be really an unfair stretch to impute to Canada the same cultural anti-Semitism that draw the masses of Europeans to commit so much disparagement, discrimination, and violence against Jews over the course of centuries. Unlike anti-incitement laws in Europe, therefore Canada's policy against the dissemination of anti-Semitic and other hate speech cannot be explained as a response to the shocking extremes of domestic depravity. The Supreme Court in Canada has explained this curtailment of ethnic incitement by, uh, as a predicate to the country's commitment to democracy and pluralistic values. So there is this, you know, a great, in, in, in Canada, Canada's thought tends to be pluralism, multiculturalism. In Germany, the explanation tends to be the retention of democracy. In Austria, it tends to be dignity, and in fact, all these countries have, this Germany and Canada as well, the Supreme Court and the statutes and the constitutions speak in, in various countries in various places in their, in their laws, speak of these concepts of dignity. Dignity is very common, but the emphasis in Canada tends to be pluralism, multiculturalism, and in German democracy. Contrary to international consensus that hate speech poses a threat, there remains a widely held belief in the United States, which is particularly common, as I say, in the media and amongst academics, that the expression of animosity towards specific groups is naught but cathartic, allowing people to express their desire to harm groups, so the thought goes, is just letting off steam. It diminishes the risk of action. Uh, this is a pressure gap type of explanation. Uh, long ago, Gordon Alport, uh, the great uh, psychologist of hatred, uh, spoke, said that there's never a bite before there is a bark. That the, the, bar, the bite always comes after the bark, but the bark comes before the bite. This mistaken belief that letting off steam will be sufficient 
for hate groups. That that's, that's all they really need. They just want to let go of their feelings. If they could just do that, we could prevent them from be, acting violently. Uh, is often coupled with the view that democratic institutions are furthered by leniency toward the, toward the expression of group defamation. While the concern of hate speech, that hate speech will inhibit free expression of ideas, is obviously very laudable, it goes against what we do in many other areas. So there are lots of limitations on speech that are not thought to be anti-democratic and in fact are thought to be democratic. One is, for example, the protection of copyrighted material. Right? Copyrighted material is protected through a very content-rich analysis. You have to look at the content of the material that's copyrighted. You have to see what the copy is. You have to determine whether the form and the material in the copyrighted material is the same as the others. That's just nothing but content-rich. The idea that you cannot uh, pretend to be an attorney, you cannot uh, fraudulently say you're a physician, if you can't examine the content of somebody say, what somebody is saying, you can't figure out whether or not they're feloniously acting like an attorney or a lawyer. So we use content limitations. But for, for this hate speech, there's a very insular concept that the U.S. has got it right and European countries have it wrong. Uh, moreover, the pluralistic values in, that democracies have in regulating hate speech in Canada and France and other countries certainly don't seem to be weaker, as I said, uh, from these regulations, as I mentioned earlier. Indeed, the exceptions to the seemingly categorical U.S. restriction on content regulations on speech undermines the safety valve and democratic commitment arguments. While it's easy for, to, for somebody to say something like, my expressive speech, my liberty to be able to speak, allows me to open up a pornographic theater in a residential district, we say no, you can have certain limitations on speech that limit your expressive ability. Another thing is that the United States Supreme Court has recognized that limitations can be placed uh, of, uh, that nobody can campaign, no one can politicize a hundred feet away from a campaign, from a polling place where you vote on the day of election. A hundred feet from a polling place if a state wants to prohibit that, it can't. Now, we all know that voting is both cathartic and democratic. And yet here is a position where it seems like we're balancing the social value of politics and people's ability to go in the polling booth and not feel like they're being pushed by somebody against the right of the guy who wants to stand there and politicize. He too has a right. He too has a liberty right. But there are legitimate limitations that can be placed on him. The same is true about deceptive and misleading uses of trade names, also something that has to be examined and where there is a value. And that value, just as in copyright, we think actually furthers and promotes self-expression, just as Canada thinks it promotes multiculturalism, that it puts certain restraints on anti-Semitic and other forms of hate speech. Historically, hate speech in the United States has not enjoyed any protections. And this doctrinal stand comes from a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio that said that only speech that is imminently threatening, that is to say there's a clear and present danger, it's going to happen right away, can be regulated. This granted hate speakers the same sort of rights that other political speakers had. It sort of legitimized hate speech as being just another form of political vitriol or uh, political statement. 
such a legal paradigm ignored the historical lessons about the power of hateful incitement, lessons that European countries had internalized in the aftermath of the Holocaust, with, for instance, the Convention on the Prevention of Genocide. The evolution of anti-Semitic propaganda in Germany during the 19th century, which began with Adolf Stoker in 1879 being the first German politician who was able to uh, effectively use anti-Semitism to win political office, right? He just went in, he was losing the campaign until he began speaking against anti-Semitism to the middle class, to the middle stop. He saw the response he got, he adopted it, and he won a seat. And that uh, Wilhelm Marr, who created the term antisemitismos, which meant, which was supposed to be uh, an, a, an umbrella term, a positive term, antisemitism, that would help uh, political groups join together so it would give them common power in the Reichstag, were very ineffective during the 19th century. They, were, they won very few seats. It was only after statements made in Germany during the 19th century, like the Jews are our misfortune, by the great German historian Trischke and uh, uh, Judenfrey, uh, Jewfrey, which had very little significance until uh, the, the, national, the, the Nazi party and other parties as well took that as their slogans and they had seeped into the culture. They were easily recognized. They were no longer new. They were no longer fresh. And they were dangerous and exploited it exploited these hatreds to come to power, winning not only not when you count the votes in the 1932 election, which brought the uh, Nazi party as being the majority in the Reichstag, along with the Catholic Center Party, the German National People's Party, and the Bavarian People's Party. The majority of parties were committed to anti-Semitism in 1932. And they, but if you look at the German election results of these part of anti-Semitic parties, in the early part of the 20th century, they had virtually no power. They were laughable. They were not, they were not taken seriously. So it take, took time for anti-Semitism, which of course had deeper cultural roots in Germany than it does in the US, to grow into a major political movement. The United States might not only learn from the European experience, but also be influenced uh, by the anti-Semitic slogans, ability to instigate evil from what has happened in its own experience with the long-term effect of hate speech. Here, anti-black statements were critical to the development of pro-slavery thought, the gathering and the strengthening of uh, John Calhoun and uh, Governor Weiss in uh, Virginia. In, 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 from, if you look at the early part of the 19th century, people were apologetic, they excused having slaves in the, set, in the 18th century, people like Patrick Henry, Jefferson were embarrassed of having slaves. By the 1830s, the pro-slavery rhetoric had taken hold. It took years, it took decades. And the same is true of the savage image of Native Americans, which caused Native American displacement, which also had almost no effect in the 17th century when Native Americans were ordinary uh, trading partners of the new colonists. But in time, these images of them not owning the land, of, of uh, and not having legitimate rights to uh, possess property because of matriarch matriarchies and, and other reasons, wound up uh, being excuses for misappropriating the lands. 
And one positive development just recently, in a case called Virginia v. Black, the Supreme Court showed an increased recognition that uh, cross-burning can be truly threatening. This was a big change because there was no imminent threat of harm component. It's a case that's been almost ignored uh, in the literature, unfortunately. And it essentially said that uh, when the Ku Klux Klan rallies occur outside where the public can see them and their crosses are burned with the intent to intimidate, then states can have criminal laws that punish and prohibit such public conduct. A practical application of that rule uh, made it possible for law enforcement agents to prevent gradual cultural infestation of anti-Semitism, ra uh, racism, and bigotry of other types that a lot, you know, that grew in Germany, as I mentioned. Um, however, where a burning cross, where a burning cross is displayed in, in private, uh, that still is something that is going to be governed by the Brandenburg <coughs> test of imminence and allowed. But that's really frankly true in other countries as well, like England, where um, a private display of hate symbols is not prohibited. Now, just as the uh, court found that the history of the cross held a certain virulence to it that could be intentionally used to instigate, I think that it, it should also be extended to other symbols, like Hamas uh, flags, Hezbollah flags, and swastikas. I don't, you know, the court hasn't done it. We don't really know whether they will. They could argue that those are symbols from other countries, but I, I think the connection of terror, if you take uh, Google Klan to be a terror group, are, are similar, and that this case, Virginia v. Black, the holding should be extended to those symbols as well. So in conclusion, there remains a significant difference between the way that the U.S. and European countries approach anti-Semitic speech, and frankly, there's little possibility that there's going to be a resolution anytime in the future with the Supreme Court now prohibiting the balancing of free speech from other social values. Until the U.S. begins to vigorously implement international protocols prohibiting the disparagement of groups, Holocaust deniers and anti-Semitic bloggers will continue to exploit U.S. territory to spread stereotypes and propaganda meant to degrade Jews and to justify the commission of illegal conduct against them. Besides the true the threats approach, which is what that Virginia v. Black case took, that a, a, another approach might be to revive the group defamation statutes. European countries use these group defamation. They recognize that a statement about uh, the inexistence of the Holocaust is a false statement, that it's not a true statement, and therefore not protected by the same democratic values that, per, per, that uh, are uh, at the core of free speech in the countries that I mentioned from Europe. The Supreme Court has long recognized this group defamation uh, doctrine. It's mentioned it in a, in a couple of opinions, but it's something that most scholars say is no longer uh, in effect. It has not been enforced for many years, but I think that people can try to revive it. As I say, the, the Supreme Court continues to cite to it as a legitimate doctrine, but it, it has not been tested in, in, in the near, few, in the near uh, past. As things stand, neo-Nazi groups that seek to elude European prosecution rely on U.S. internet platforms to spread their anti-Semitic programs. It's time to look for ways to bring the U.S. in line with other democracies 
and to diminish the spread and effectiveness of the of anti-Semitism here and abroad. Thank you so much. With that. I'd be glad to entertain any questions or comments, insights on your part. Yes. Very good. Uh, let me be devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, what would you say to people who argue that, you know, it's long been known that when you prohibit something, it becomes attractive? Uh, that perhaps not prohibiting it, but look, if you, let's compare how Jews feel in, in the countries that have those laws that suppress hate speech versus how they feel in countries that don't. Now, I realize there are many factors involved, but, but uh, it seems to me that you could make a case that Jews are more comfortable in a country like the United States where, where the, the, that kind of speech is not suppressed than they are in many of these European countries that do suppress the, the hate speech. So, could you deal with that point? Sure, sure. Uh, I think it's a very good point. Um, uh, so I think a couple of things there. Uh, one is the attractiveness standpoint, you know, that if you make something illegal, let me just jot down so I make sure to answer all of your points. Um, so the attractiveness point. I think that point could be made about any sort of criminal <coughs> law, right? Uh, date rape laws. Maybe the person has never thought about date rape, but Here's a date rape law that thinks, oh, date rape, okay, well, here's an easy victim, you know. I'm in, I'm in this room, I'm completely alone, it's, it's an easy victim. The same is true of all manner of other laws, right? Copyright violation, maybe, you know, someone doesn't think about trademark violation. I mean, all sorts of crimes, you know. Uh, people say that from sitting in jail, they often learn about crimes they never thought of. And so that often, by putting people in jail, I mean, one of the arguments that people have made about the reduction of the time that we sit people in jail and also uh, have argued for an increase in rehabilitation as opposed to punishment is that we put these people in jail with other people who are criminals and they begin to learn crimes they just never thought about. They learn methods of doing breaking and entering where they never realize that someone tells them over oh, what you do is you look at a house and you sit outside and here's the way you case the joint, you know, and here are the tools you use. So I think, you know, this could be really said about any uh, sort of uh, law. I, to, I think to the contrary that what it does is it communicates a nation's disapprobation. So I think it should be, I think these laws should be used extremely rarely. Speech is too important for us to, to jump in like, you know, like date rape or murder or something like that, you know, and just to, uh, you know, prosecute left and right. Not at all. These should be used very hesitantly. But we should, we should be conscious of the fact that the fact that we are a democracy now is no uh, promise that it, this will happen forever. In fact, we were not a democracy in, as far as women, as far as blacks, as far as many different groups in our history as well. And so, uh, the, I, you know, another argument that's along the lines of what you've said that's made is that we give these groups a platform. For instance, there was a guy, in, uh, an Aboriginal leader in Canada was prosecuted, convicted, and then uh, eventually uh, appealed and acquitted. Uh, and people said, look, if he, he had made these anti-Semitic statements, if he, had, if he just didn't prosecute him, people would have forgotten what he said. And, and he was acquitted eventually, after all, right? But the thing is, Canada made a statement that it will not tolerate that. 
that that is not part of its society. So that that in and of itself was worth it because a Jew or any other person of any other group can go to Canada and feel that he has the country as a, as a uh, legal entity on his side in case you know somebody scrawls something. You know, it's not definitive, and your view is, is a very legitimate one, but it's my response to it. Sorry, back there. Yeah. yeah um, most of the examples that you gave of uh, countries with laws that are in place that you think of as, as examples of what the U.S. should do, they've been in place for 50 to 60 years at most. Any, any examples you can give that have been in place for a much longer period of time that have stood the test of time? And, uh, and then what do you think the downside, what are the risks to those laws that Play the other side, and given one side of the, uh, what's what's the what's the risks of those laws that, that the governments have used those laws? Two questions. Um, there are no longer precedents than the ones that I'm than those that I'm aware of. I mean, I you know they could be out there. I've never researched it uh, for to see what was there before uh, the Second World War. But the thought is that really it was a genocide convention that began this. And that it was the while it was always the case that there were xenophobic points of views that drummed up people and dehumanized the other, and allowed for people to slaughter and to butcher other human beings, looking them right in the eye and thinking of them as not being human, that it was really the mass atrocities of the Holocaust and the effectiveness of the Nazi machine to use that propaganda that led to the genocide convention, and then. Uh, it really was the really it was the creation of the UN, also, and the uh, that these countries committed themselves that they would make these laws. So I, I'm not I'm unaware of any other examples. Um, the you know uh, the downside, right? The the upside is they they prosecuted uh, a variety of groups. The downside, I mean, to make the counter argument to my point is that you could say some people say that uh, hate, hate speech laws, just like hate crimes laws, tend to target minorities. So they'll say, for instance, that, uh, uh, that groups that are considered the other, gays and lesbians, for example, tend to be targeted because, they don't, because people don't think of that as normal behavior. Or that uh, uh, hate crimes laws, which is also analogous or similar to hate speech laws, are more used towards minorities. Uh, I, I don't know they don't buy into that because I think that if there's anti-Semitism coming from Farrakhan, it's just as bad as anti-Semitism coming from David Duke. And you prosecute whoever you prosecute. Right? Where there's abuse of the system, there's abuse of uh, uh, you know, uh, disorderly conduct ordinances with most sweeps occurring in black neighborhoods. But does that mean, in, in, you know, in, uh, if there's a particular targeting that's of, uh, of um, uh, groups that are meant to be protected by these laws, then there would be something that's legitimate, but it seems too abstract an argument. I guess another argument against this is that it doubles down free speech and might later cause uh, diminution of speech in other areas that just hasn't happened with such things as harassment laws in the workplace, right? You could say Title VII, which perhaps prohibits sexual harassment, so I can't put uh, Playboy centerfold in my cubicle at work because people, if, if it offends people, you could say, well, you know, it diminishes my ability to free speech, other people's free speech. But we just don't think of that as a society. We think that other people have certain rights and sensitivities that we should honor, even if it's a minority of those people. Uh, so 
Uh, again, I, I, I see the other side. I think it's a completely legitimate argument, but I think that there are short arguments here. I think you had a question. Well, it's about hate crime legislation, but you covered it. But do you want to say anything else? Anything further? No, I, I'm, no I'm fine. Uh, so I think there, there are motivation issues there. Those are the difficulties. Uh, I think Joel has his hand up, then Charles, and here, and then Warren. Yeah. So, so I have one um, radically provocative um, question. And then, if I could, two related points. The radically provocative one is following up on your comments on Virginia versus Black. Could you repeat that? Yeah, so it's the, 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 my radically provocative one is um, thinking about the comments on Virginia versus Black, which was the cross-burning could be seen as um, imminently threatening. Or true threat. Or true threat. Would that suggest that the Jewish community should act far more aggressively um, when anti-Semitic speech is, uh, is made in a way that makes it uh, clear that that kind of speech would create an imminent risk of violence? That's the provocative. Um, the second is, I, I thought about your comments um, on that the U.S. is rejecting any kind of balancing of social values. And I wonder if there might not be, going forward, a way of looking at balancing within the First Amendment itself. Because the First Amendment also has freedom of association. Mm -hmm. And I wonder that to the extent that you could make arguments, anti-Semitic speech, the, the impact of that, the excitement created by that is harmful in, is, is harmful to the associational rights of the Jewish community. Uh, and to that extent, and this is where I think Charles comes in, if that kind of argument could be made, it would suggest a very fruitful research avenue for researchers to look into the impact on Jewish groups from anti-Semitic speech. And I think of you know, the impact on, on campuses, for example. You had very aggressive um, uh, organizations on campus attacking uh, Jews in the Jewish community, if you can research and demonstrate what's the impact on Jewish students on campus, that it's impinging, impeding their associational freedoms, whether that might be a way uh, of getting mm -hmm. That's great. Let me, let me uh, pick up on that. Um, it, it just because it was the, the question we just had, so it's nice to transition with it. I think that's spectacular, and in fact, the way that those cases are drafted, that say you can't balance uh, free speech against other social values, I actually have an article, I'm going to attack that, I mean, I, I was just thinking on the flight here, well, what am I going to do, you know, i got working on these things in here, and i got a little space, this will be nice to do, is to say to balance it with uh, constitutional values, rather than social values. Right? So the way, so I had not thought of association. I had not thought of it, and that, that you just added. I was thinking about equality, travel, right? Travel is also one about, I mean, it's also not written, it's not explicitly in the Constitution. Association, by the way, is not explicitly in the Constitution, right? It's an implied First Amendment, right? Uh, and uh, uh, equality is there. And so maybe what we should, what, the way to go from the court is to say, well, you can balance it against other constitutional rights. You have, you have right to peaceable assembly is explicitly stated uh -huh. in the First Amendment. Yeah. And if what happens to a campus group is because of the uh, assertiveness, the Jewish groups can't peaceably assemble. 
Right, absolutely. Or can't go on a certain part of campus, huh? right? Because it's got some wall and, uh, you know, it's making those uh, very uh, Jewish uh, uh, stereotype. Uh, so I think that's fantastic. Um, if I ever write that, you will definitely get <laughs> uh, the acknowledgement that you deserve. That's our reward for your And I'll send it to you. It's more my reward for coming, actually. The other point about Virginia Black, the first point you made, so it does not use imminent threat of harm. The amazing thing is it's a true threats doctrine that comes from that uh, case uh, with the Johnson, that threat made supposedly against John, Lyndon Johnson, uh, where you know, they upheld the true threats statute. All it said was that you had to prove intent to intimidate. That's very common with the European laws as well. It's very protective of speech, and it's necessary to be protective to prove up beyond a reasonable doubt there's an intent to intimidate and protect uh, free speech rights, and yet we'll go after groups that are like Stormfront or Ku Klux Klan, Hamas, as well, that are very obvious in what they're doing. And um, uh, with that, you don't have to provoke, right? You can just say, look, we, we perceive this as a true, uh, we are reasonable people who perceive this as a true threat. And in fact, the difficulty would be proving up the intent, like it always is, the Santer element. So I think Charles had his hand up next, and then I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but you're next, and then, and then Dwayne, and then somebody else had his hand up next, so I'll try to keep track of the order. Yeah. So I just want to comment on the notion of freedom of expression. So in the Canadian context, there's freedom of expression, freedom of speech, but there's also freedom of conversation. Yeah. And so the that's a very important distinction to make. And also, in a sense, I think the whole notion of citizenship is very different in a place like Canada compared to the United States. The social contract is much more robust. So healthcare, education are seen as rights, not privileges. And protection, protecting the citizen is an integral part of the legal system, and I think just being uh, a member of a society with that social contract. But I don't know if citizenship plays a role in these issues as well. And now for a second thought, to bring it back to contemporary anti-Semitism. And first of all, I want to thank you for the paper. It was a very rich thought to hope you um, Contemporary anti-Semitism, in a sense, I, I would argue, everybody certainly agrees, but contemporary anti-Semitism at the core, I would say, is sort of the demonization of Israel and via the demonization of Israel, Jewish communities in the diaspora that are supporting this racist apartheid, colonial you know, uh, entity. Radical political Islam has at its core a, a genocidal anti-Semitism, which is clear. It's uh, part of theology, it's part of its military policies, it's part of its uh, political speech and aspirations. It's clear and unequivocal and open and honest and in your Kawadari, the spiritual head of the Egyptian uh, government, regime, or what to call it, uh, literally led a prayer calling for the extermination of Jews. Morsi doesn't do anything without uh, adhering to his uh, religious views. And in the West, and in the academy, there's the acquiescence for all sorts of reasons to this threat. The United States is the greatest purveyor of this anti-Semitic hatred through the internet, in the world. This is where all the domains are, well, many of the domains are registered, and a lot of the internet traffic, which is playing an important role in disseminating this hatred, comes through the United States, or is disseminated from the United States. 
The United States, in terms of, you spoke about the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, is a signatory to that convention and is obligated to prosecute or bring people to tribunals who are violating the convention. And of course, it's never been done for the prevention of Article 4. As a legal scholar, if, I, if what I'm saying is true in terms of its anti-Semitism, the genocidal anti-Semitism, I don't think we need to be so worried politically, maybe the legal jurisprudence and the, the, the importance of the past cases of the president of a lot of scholars in New York is important. But politically, in terms of studying contemporary anti-Semitism, the crosses and the right-wing stuff in Idaho or some one guy opens a store in India with the name Hitler. It's not so important. Our administration here is funding the Muslim Brotherhood in the tune of billions of dollars. They're supporting all kinds of characters that are literally genocidal and they're anti-Semitism. And yet, legally, the First Amendment guarantees all sorts of freedomization. What do we do? What, is there a legal remedy? Is the government of the United States obligated to draw red lines on those who are inciting to exterminate people? There is. Yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned this. First of all, uh, you know, you, you said it much better than I did, so let me just, I won't be able to add a whole lot. There, there is uh, this uh, law that uh, I mentioned, and I'll be glad to give you the citation to it. It's in my paper that it enables the uh, uh, U.S. commitment to the Genocide Convention. And so it obligates the prosecution of genocidal incitement, which would include what you've just mentioned. As I said, I, I've looked at all the extent cases, and they're, they're, nobody knows you've been prosecuted. There are other, other provisions of that act they have been prosecuted, but not the one about incitement. So I, I think the way to go about that, although it's completely out of my hands, but you know, you've got much more influence than me on this, because you've got many more connections in the uh, you know, amongst Jewish groups, is to try to get somebody to bring a test case, Simon Wiesenthal or somebody. Right? So if I can prove, if there's a body of information that shows that uh, the Morsi government is inciting to genocide, let's say I can prove it, is the United States of America obligated to change policies? It's not, because that's really the political question doctrine, right? So in terms of diplomacy, that you can't change. But in terms of prosecuting, what I was going more towards are if the domains are in this country and the actual incitement to genocide, gross incitement to genocide, explicit incitement to genocide is here, that I would think that the U.S. can go against. I'm unaware of it going against. Uh, now, just a, a quick follow-up is your points about, you know, that uh, these uh, you know, right-wing groups, Klan, uh, neo-Nazis and so forth, have very little uh, power and effect relative to the radical Islam. I, I absolutely agree with you. My, my limitation as a scholar is that I don't know Arabic. And so, you know, we have memory, M-E-M-R-I, the, the website that translates things. But I'm, then I'm limited by what they provide as opposed to doing my own deep research. And so, I, you know, it's a shortcoming of my research, frankly, and of my writing. I, I just can't get at the material. And I'm much more closer to studying Yiddish than I am for another project about the Holocaust that I have in mind. Um, so, I'm, you know, I, we need scholars to do this. And unfortunately, I just don't have the... We need probably Israeli scholars, frankly, because in Israel, they study Arabic, right? So someone in Arabic needs to pick up that strand.
of thought and start reading this. And maybe they are, you know, but I'm going to wear them. Uh, I'm sorry, so you Yeah, I was just uh, kind of a piggyback of Which is Israel, right? So you know it's very troubling. Actually, I was just in uh, synagogue uh, last uh, Sabbath, and uh, there's a prayer. It's slipping my mind what it is, and it talks about how we collectively, as a group, have this conscience. And I apologize, I can't remember the prayer, and I'm not going to spark anyone's memory of it by just saying that. But I thought to myself, well, that's we have that feeling, but during World War II, that didn't help us. You know, when people walked into those pits, and Kaminitz Pedotsk, for example, which I began speaking about, where Joel and my family come from, uh, our families, I should say, all come from, uh, you know, there was an account of a man, a Jew, the Nazis didn't realize it was a Jew, driving, and he actually saw the slaughter people getting into the pits and just walking up, and we've read these accounts, I'm sure all of us have, uh, during the Holocaust, walking into the pits willfully, not resisting. You know, it's almost a belief that if I am going to be compliant. They're eventually going to see what a nice guy I am. They're going to say, you, you can go. You listen to us. You know? And no, it doesn't happen. So that we've, our approach is very collective. We, we do have a collective conscience. Uh, and that, you know, unfortunately didn't work particularly well, except for the few partisans out there who fought. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, I do think we have to use the law. Some people will hold it against us. I do think we should not attack Muslims as a group because it would be incorrect or just we shouldn't attack Germans. There were Germans who were helpful, even though they were extremely small number. There were Ukrainians who helped Jews. They were extremely small in number. But we, you know, we, we need to target more of the hatred. Now, the, the hatred, the problem is, of course, in the Islamic world, where let's say you have 2% of the population from the figure I've heard that's genocidal, we take a billion people. That's a large amount of people, right? Uh, but but it, I think we need to be careful and uh, and ultimately, you know, if I mean you know, 
that ultimately we can go to sleep at peace with ourselves, that we have not committed the same crimes against humanity as they, because we followed through on commitments to justice and equality, and not certainly not all of us, not all of us Jews have done so, and many of us have fallen short, but, but I think we should still follow uh, that path. And it is effective, because, you know, after all, the Genocide Convention was uh, a Jewish uh, man's uh, uh, birth child. Uh, you know, uh, to the equal protection laws in this country, of course, blacks were instrumental, but Jews were uh, as well. So I do think we should continue that policy, but Israel is a major, major safeguard that we have that we didn't before. Yes, so um, what I'd like to um, say that this is, um, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, and um, um, so I would not offer anything concrete or useful. Um, but what I would say is that um, free speech is the sacred uh, cow mm -hmm. of American life. And the coming out against free speech is a very risky strategy in the context of the United States, particularly in the academy. But not only in the academy, but I would say that I can't envision um, a situation in which a, uh, a free speech position uh, will not triumph in academia. Uh, and in fact, efforts to limit some of the worst hate speakers um, generally backfire. Uh, there was this famous Irish uh, poet that uh, was invited to, I forget his name, he's a very anti-Semitic guy who uh, was invited to speak at the literature department at Harvard a few years ago and mm -hmm. people were upset. I mean, he was really a jerk. Um, and so uh, the department canceled the invitation because he was offensive. <coughs> So there was a big bruja about free speech. He was invited to speak at the university. And the bruja generated hundreds and hundreds of people in the audience. Um, you have this kind of thing. Every time you, you um, uh, we had an event at Yale. Um, I live in New Haven, that's why I, I say that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, some, somebody came and, and you know, it draws the hundreds. I mean, it's kind of, it's one of those things that it's, and if you try to fight it, it's a non-winning strategy. I'm not, it's, it's, it's not like I'm, I have a solution, but I'm saying um, at Fordham we had um, Norman Finkelstein coming, you know, and we didn't do anything. The faculty didn't do anything. And I think the result was a much, much, much lower attendance, no, you know, not much ado, but nothing only people came were, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the Muslim Student Association who invited him, invited Jew to say things about Jews, uh, which he always complies. But, you know, I, you know, but it's kind of one of those things that, you know, that it's a, um, you know, the, the strategy. I mean, I can't see myself advocating a non-free speech position. It's, a, it's admitting defeat from the outset. Right. I agree with you. And that's why I think the approach to take, the one I've taken, is it, it does not diminish free speech, right? That, that here are, I mean, the way that I did the talk today, the way that I've approached it is that uh, here are countries that, honor, that have commitments to free speech just as strong in their constitutions as the U.S., and they, have, they allow for the regulation of hate speech as well. So definitely not coming out against free speech. We don't want to do that. First of all, it, it's not in me, and I believe it. Uh, and second of all, 
uh, to say that this would be an exception, just like copyright laws are an exception, obscenity laws are an exception, trademark violations are an exception. This is just another one that we should have. Uh, but I think the problem with it, uh, Alex, is that anti-Semitic speech is so prevalent. You know, it's not like, you know, it, it, by focusing on the KKK, and we Charles this rightly, you know, focusing on the KKK and a bunch of right-wing nut, nut groups, it's very simple. I mean, it's not, you know, they're not. But when you have um, so much uh, virulence coming from different groups, different individuals, not groups, not, sorry, um, it, it, you, you, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, you know, the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, is that the, the, the defining thing, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. Well, one place to draw the line is where the statements are not opinionated, but factual. So, for example, in Germany, in, in France, you can have Nazi symbols. You know, if I come into class and I'm talking about William Shirer's book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and he's got the swastika in there, no one's going to take me to jail. And if I, if I have an opinion and somebody comes in and says, I hate Jews, they're all a bunch of uh, slime and whatever, that's not actionable. It's opinion. The problem occurs when it's factual. There is no Holocaust because that demeans, it makes us all a bunch of liars, and it, it's, 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 it's a, something that's analogous to defamation. People who oppose this will often say, well, first of all, that's not constitutional, and I don't want to go into the details of that because that really is technical, although I'd be happy to talk about it one-on-one -on -one because that has to do with this precedent going into uh, a public figure New York Times we sell it's just too, we take too much to explain. Um, but uh, then I say, well, but you don't want to do, I mean, I talked to scholars, right, I've debated Jeff Stone uh, at Chicago was very much opposed to Rodney Smola at Yale, I debated, uh, I've debated uh, Nadine Strawson in Texas, I've debated lots of these uh, characters, uh, and, uh, and you're absolutely right, you know, I'm presumably not going to convince them, but at least, hey, you know, they, they're willing to listen, I appreciate that. Uh, and um, uh, so I think that it's worth at least putting forward this argument. With Norman Finkelstein, well, you didn't stop him, but DePaul stopped him. DePaul stopped him. They did not give the guy tenure. Now, they used, they said, well, you know, he's too vitriolic, he's too offensive in the way that he, he attacks individuals, he's too ad hominem, but they stopped that guy. Right? And what did he do? Very shortly after they didn't deny him tenure, he went and met with Hezbollah and he said they were free freedom fighters in the Middle East. I mean, he showed his face. So uh, that was not low key. DePaul's stance against Finkelstein was not low key. And yet, I would say DePaul won, Finkelstein lost. He's not getting any academic position anywhere in the United States. I mean, I can't imagine it happening. It's odd, though, recently came out with some statements that were considered too pro-Israel for the BDS people. Wow, I haven't met in Yeah, yeah, Finkelstein now is on the right wing of the, BD, of the BDS movement. I, <laughs> I don't know if that takes a whole lot. Um, so fact, fact instead of opinion, lots of okay. you know, hatred, uh, that's totally allowable. You know, we must live with it in society. So, but uh, you know, it's just na nature of democratic society, but uh, not where it's factual. You had a question, 
is that many Jews don't perceive much anti-Semitism in the United States. And I speak from trying to actually organize faculty, some group of faculty at Fordham around what I consider problematic. Mm -hmm. And the response was, well, we don't have a problem here, um, which I found very interesting. So you're talking about wanting political activity where you have perhaps many people who don't see much of a problem. I remember, um, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors as well, and in San Francisco when my parents trying to organize Holocaust survivors to give some voice to their experience of the monuments up, etc., most people were frightened to make noise. They wanted to go below the radar and not be seen as problematic. So we, in a sense, may be our worst enemies, is what I'm saying. I mean, I don't mean that literally, but I don't think that there is necessarily a taste for a lot of political action, which is essentially what you're advocating when you talk about Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, etc. I don't think there's a real taste for that in the general Jewish community. Now, I'm surmising this based on anecdotal experience. You know, I'm a researcher, so I don't think to make those kinds of broadest conclusions, but I, you know, I'm sort of laying it out there. Um, and as long as we don't recognize it when it occurs, and I think it happens in many little different ways, you know, often. It does, it's not the problem. We see it when we talk about Hamas, Hezbollah, you know, it's going on in the Arab world, but we don't talk about what goes on in our own communities. Right. Well, part of it is that we have to stand up. Mr. Charles, you want to answer it? Yeah, a very brief intervention. I, I just spent uh, five days with Daniel Simone, the French, uh, Parisian uh, intellectuals, a mathematician, a psychoanalyst, and a philosopher. It's an amazing guy. And he would sort of unpack the whole kind of thing, issue in this talk in Montreal, which I never considered before. He was looking at the psychological effects of anti-Semitism. And he was arguing that Islamophobia, first of all, at one level, is the West's rejection of the Muslim world. And the Islamophobia is that the Muslims are perceived as hordes of mobs, and we are afraid of them and we want them to be quiet. The Jews come along, some Jews, and they say, hey, there's a problem in the Islamic world, and the reaction is to keep it quiet. And the, the, the animosity is then directed towards the Jew. It's sort of his uh, philosophical. Then he, he sort of is saying that Jews in the United States have had success. Uh, some of them are, are in institutions where their parents and grandparents would never have dreamt of There's fear, there's guilt. And when these issues are put in their face, they acquiesce, they're silent, and not only are they silent, but they become angry at the messenger of the issue. It's also called passing. African-American is that the term? Yeah. Passing. Yeah. Anyway, so they just spent five days on So there is this whole body of literature in the French context on these issues, which I've never knew, but it's fascinating. Uh, so two things. One is that um, in Germany also there were many people, not all, because many people left, including Einstein, and immediately realized what was going on. In fact, a large group of Jews left immediately. Uh, it's also a country where many Jews were in power and they could be taken out just like that. You know, so I wouldn't take it for granted that Jews are in high political offices to think that it's not going to happen anytime soon, but in decades if somebody were to come to power with uh, uh, you know, true anti-Semitic ambitions and was able to gather uh, people in. 
and actually, quite frankly, if that has any potential, it's going to come through Farrakhan because he's really the, the strongest in terms of potential for politics in the United States, taking that to a new level, not only in terms of anti-Semitism, but again, you know, he's very opposed to uh, racial mixing and all sorts of different things. Uh, then, uh, you know, so we have to be realistic. We need to stand up to issues where we can. I totally agree with you. I think Jews tend to be much more uh, able and willing to stand up for other groups and to say, you know, to think that we don't really need that as much for ourselves. For example, in Title Seven, the anti-discrimination law, uh, Jews were supposed to be in there, believe it or not, but uh, the Jewish groups said that they wanted to be taken out of there because they said we've done well enough in this country. Here's my data. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a whole, there's a scrutiny as a researcher from some But we have done very well in this country. I mean, I think it would be, we have to be, right. uh, you know, that's, we have to really acknowledge that in the United States, this has been the, um, you know, the golden diaspora, you know, what, the greatest golden diaspora in, in Jewish history. So this is not, we Jews have done really well here. So the thing, right. it's not, the, the, the threats at the moment don't come from domestic. Right, so that's another great point. And I wanted to go that as a second route. So one is to defend where we need to. The second one is that in the counter argument, which you just made, uh, stronger than I uh, had wanted to, and I'm glad that you did, is that uh, that we should not take it for granted that we will remain in this position forever. It, uh, you know, it's it's easy to think that, that, that this is the way it was, and it's feasible that uh, Jews in other countries uh, thought something similar. And Germany is a great example. That surely we, who were veterans in World War One and who are so established, will not seek uh, the you know uh, will not be so undermined by these extremist parties. The Germans will wake up. Uh, so, but we shouldn't take it for granted. And I do think that having laws that prohibit hate speech towards Jews and other groups is critical because it continues to communicate the, that, uh, that we will not tell, we will not consider this to be legitimate forms of speech. It will, we will not say, oh, well, let social Darwinism have its course, which is with the marketplace of ideas doctrine and the First Amendment, which Alvin Wendell Holmes came up with before, well, really, it's actually uh, Mill's idea, uh, the philosopher Mill's idea uh, that, uh, that Holmes adopted, this idea that in the marketplace of ideas, the truth will triumph. But if you look at Holmes's other writings, Holmes is a social Darwinist. He doesn't believe there's anything objectively called truth. He thinks what happens is that the, the stronger social movements have their way, and whatever they say is truth is true. Uh, he's very clear about that. And so if he actually says in a case called Gitlow, a First Amendment case, that if, it, if a uh, proletariat totalitarianism were to come to power, then it should have its way. And that's what happened in Algiers with uh, uh, Islamicists winning in the democratic elections and, and trying to put down democracy as a whole. And Algiers saying, well, no, that's not. We're not going to have that. We're going to revoke those election results. So I think we shouldn't take it for granted. We're doing so well. We should be grateful to this country. Uh, and we should forever be grateful to this country. I'm an army officer. I served in the US military for nine and a half years. Uh, and uh, we should, for sure, not see this in some sort of a clouded way. Uh, but um, we should also be cognizant of the fact that it might not be forever. We should 
uh, we should be cautious about future generations as well. Uh, you had a question. Yeah. yeah. Um, my question is goes back to the like difference approach, different approaches in America versus Europe. Um, and so what I've been sort of perceiving with, with your de definition of hate speech is that there's three different levels almost. There's the like, speech that dehumanizes the other. And then there's the speech that like incites violence, like immediate violence, like in the um, black court, I forget. Uh, Virginia Ohio. v. Black. Virginia yes. v. Black. And then you were talking about um, in like speech that incites genocide. So those are like almost three different levels of hate speech, if you That's just how I'm taking it right now. And so I'm wondering your um, how you would put this together with the recent, and in what you think the U.S. governments should be doing with the recent um, subway campaign ad in New York City that was, um, I forget the exact words that it used, but it was like a private organization that put up subway ads that used, I think, the term like, um, take the civilized path, like support Israel, and it dehumanized, it, it like made the other, the Palestinian, the terrorist, whatever word it used, I'm not sure it used anything, it was just like, take the civilized, and there was a huge brouhaha over it, and people found it offensive but no one took it down, and there was even a woman who was arrested in Times Square for defacing it, just because that was, that's against the law, but this particular um, poster or advertisement campaign that some people felt counted as hate speech wasn't against the law. So I'm just wondering what you think the U.S. government should have taken a different stance on that, kind of, like, would that have been permitted in Europe? That particular so the dehumanizing that. aspect of it will not be, it will go nowhere in the United States because that has to do with violations of dignity. Mm -hmm. And there is explicit, there's a German, the very first part of the basic law, the first section, protects dignity rights. Mm -hmm. There's very, there's some movement of that in the United States. The Supreme Court talks about it, for example, it spoke about it in a case called Lawrence v. Texas, which protected. Uh, the uh, intimate rights of gays to engage in intimate contact. It spoke of dignity rights. It speaks about it in different contexts, but it, it really, just so Connor has spoken about it as well, but it, it has very little weight. So the dehumanization uh, will gain no traction in the U.S. Where it might gain traction is these anti-incitement laws, anti-genocide laws that Ted Charles proposed, and just laws where there's really an instigation, an intentional instigation to get people to commit crimes against humanity or violence against individuals and, and on the basis of hatred, where you could have laws that either are separate laws that are very specific about that form of instigation as opposed to another form of instigation that is just go steal some money and here, you know, because this person is a Jew or black or Instigation yeah, against a group. A, 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 an identifiable group, that's right. Uh, and I do think that would work. The other type is group defamation, where you say something that is false about an entire group of people that uh, harms them. You have to prove harm, so it can't be simply we don't like it, it hurts our feelings. That's never going to go anywhere. It wouldn't go anywhere in any European country that I'm aware of. You have to actually hurt their dignity in Europe, and here you would have to hurt their reputation and ability to get a job, and ability to retain a job, that sort of thing. What's the difference between hurting dignity and hurting your feelings? How do you legally delineate those two? I don't know how Europeans do it, though. You know, and again, I don't think it would work here. But dignity, you, where here what would work is that you would actually have to have a cognizable harm. If somebody lost his or her job. Okay. It caused severe emotional distress. You know, that's just a very difficult thing to prove. 
uh, it, you know, maybe that would be sort of a tort. Richard Delgado's proposed that. It, take, I mean, take the particular ad, the actual mm -hmm. text of the ad. Oh, thanks, the more, um, uh, There were several, but, but the one I think you're mentioning, it's a, it says, in any war between the civilized man and the savage, civilized. support the civilized man, support Israel, defeat jihad. Mm -hmm. Right, so to me that doesn't look like hate speech at all. I don't see any instigation, any in, intent. Right, so that just looks like free speech. The same thing with, I don't know if you ever saw the cartoons, the Danish cartoons. Yeah. Denmark thought those were not instigations. I've looked at those cartoons, they don't look like instigations to me. Mm -hmm. They just look like a bunch of uh, opinions. The same thing on the flip side, just to make sure that you know people know that my commitment is equal, Right, the book on the investment movement that also seems to be like a free speech movement. I think we should more speech, in fact, counters that form of speech. Mm -hmm. But what I'm talking about are really extreme situations that could that have in other places drawn democracies into autocracies, and that we need to be cautious but not take for granted that democracy is forever. Well, let's if you could uh, if you could our ah Charles go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> our bewitching Thank you for coming. Alex Steinberg. It was an amazing uh, session. So thank you. Just very briefly, next the next session is November the 8th. We're having, I think, a very interesting speaker. His name is Harris Rafiq. He's a Muslim. He's an old friend, by the way. And um, he does work on radicalization. He was actually quite radical when he was a young person in uh, northern England. And he works with young kids uh, who are radical to kind of bring them back into the mainstream. And he's an advisor for the uh, British government, both the Labour and the Conservative governments, on dealing with Muslim minorities in Europe and radical Muslims. And he's, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a serious thinker and interesting experiences. I think he'll do, uh, do a very good session with us. So uh, November the 8th is in uh, two Thursdays from the